Okay, we're in Gospel of John chapter 1, the latter part, and my goal is to go through the rest of the Gospel of John, starting in verse 43 to 51, but I want to back up and talk about a few things that we haven't talked about in what we read uh, in the last lesson, too. Uh, just a little, little backup, little review. In earlier messages, we looked at the three questions that John the Baptist was asked, and, and I think now we'll have a pretty good appreciation for why he was asked those questions. The first one is, are you the Christ, the, the king who was going to come? This talked about in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Psalm 2. The second question was, are you Elijah? It was talked about in Malachi and also in, in Isaiah, but principally the end of Malachi. And then the last one, are you the prophet, which is, of course, the prophet who would come, who would be just like Moses, that Moses spoke about before he died in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And then John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, which points back to the story of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12, as well as to the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, and it says, uh, the famous passage there says, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. So it's the, it's the, lamb, the lamb there. He's the Lamb of God. And then two of John's disciples who were with him on hearing the statement proceed to leave John the Baptist and start to follow Jesus instead. So why did they do that? Well, John said, when they asked John, Who are you? He answered, He is the one... In, in Isaiah chapter 40, that Isaiah spoke about, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. So he came, he was the one that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 40, and he identifies Jesus as the one Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah chapter 53. John the Baptist is the one who prepared the way for the Lord. The Jesus is the suffering servant, he's the Lamb of God. So I think one thing you might appreciate from just is just the first chapter, John, is if you understand the Old Testament well, you're going to get so much more understanding out of what we're reading in the Gospel of John. So I want to talk about some things that I don't have definitive answers for because everybody thinks, well, Chuck, you have you're, you're so confident, you're so sure of everything you say. Uh, well, actually. Uh, I'm confident about some things, but I'm really not confident about some other things, too. So I want to throw some things out there that I'm not sure about, but I wrestle with. I always have questions in the Old Testament. I'll read things, and some things I think, I think I'm not sure what that means or what that's all about. So we'll, we'll, talk, we'll look at some of those things today that I'm not sure about, but I'll tell you, I'll, but I think we should wrestle with them anyway. And sometimes I'm not sure about something for 20 years, and then, uh, and then I feel like, oh, now I feel like I understand it better. So I'm always, always working on things. So one of the things that puzzles me when I'm reading through the John chapter 1, John chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, the Pharisees ask John the Baptist a question. Think about this. In John chapter 1, let's turn and read it in verses 24 and 25. Uh, now those who were sent were, for, uh, were from the Pharisees, and they asked him, so they're asking John the Baptist, Why do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So 
thinking, wait a minute, did I miss something here in the Old Testament? He's to say, you're baptizing people. Well, why are you baptizing if you're not one of those three people? Well, where in, the, where in all these prophecies that we've looked at, where does it say that Elijah or John the, you know, Elijah or the Christ or the prophet would be baptizing people? Did I miss that in the Old Testament somewhere? Why did they think that? Why did they ask that question? So it's a question that's puzzled me for years. And, uh, and John doesn't answer the question. John never answers the question, why are you baptizing if you're none of those three people? So, but it, it's, I, it sounds like the Pharisees had something in mind from the Old Testament that would tie the coming of some expected person to baptizing. So, you know, just, just think about this on your own. Can you think of anything in the Old Testament that suggests somebody coming in the future is going to be baptizing? Because in the Old Testament, before John the Baptist, is there anybody who is baptizing other people? Just, you know, masses of people coming to them and getting immersed in water for spiritual reasons. Now, there are, there are examples of spiritual cleansing for the priests or things like that, but you know, I'm having a tough time thinking of anything that really that really corresponds to that. Hmm. A general baptism, or particularly, John is preaching, it says, a baptism for the remission of sins. Mm -hmm. So where does that come from? Where did he get the idea to do that? And where did the, the other guys get the idea this is something tied? So I, I wrestle with this, thinking... What's going on here? So many things in the Gospel of John, I feel like I understand when they're talking about the Old Testament, but I'm stumped on this one. So I'll throw out there some possibilities as this is as far as I've been able to come with this so far. Isaiah chapter 1, in verses 16 to 18. You can, you can turn there and follow along. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, it says... <clears throat> Isaiah is talking about the corruption and depravity of the Jewish nation. And he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away evils from your souls before my eyes. Cease from your evils. Learn to do good. Seek judgment and redeem the wrong. Defend the orphan and justify the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Although your sins are like crimson... Some, some translations will say scarlet, same thing. I shall make them white like snow, and all they are, though they are scarlet, I shall make them white like wool. It's Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. I'm reading from a translation based on the uh, Septuagint. So, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. So, this is, this is in the Old Testament. Uh, also, I think about in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1. This is from the Masoretic text. Uh, uh, the Septuagint words it a bit differently here, but it says, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. So maybe that's suggesting this, but still that doesn't tie it in with any specific person that it's associated with the coming of somebody. Well, in that day, this is sometime in the future, it's going to happen. And then the other one I'm thinking about, which I'm a little more inclined toward, and, and this is, I'll, I'll throw this one out there for you to consider. 
Where in the Old Testament does it talk about the Elijah who is to come? It's in the end of Malachi. Malachi uh, 3, Malachi 3, Malachi 4. Okay. I want to read from Malachi 3. This is from the New King James in verses 1 and 2. So think about this, and then, and further on he, he ties the, this messenger in uh, as being Elijah. Behold, I send my messenger, he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come in his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a launderer's soap. So, like a launderer's soap. I was just thinking about that for a minute. So, they're waiting for the Elijah who is to come before the Lord, before the day of the Lord. They're meditating on these scriptures, and it says it's going to be like a launderer's soap. Perhaps thinking about that, they're seeing John the Baptist, and this is basically the spiritual soap and water ministry, where he's cleaning people up spiritually. That John is like the soap, and the water is the, the water he's baptizing. And it's a spiritual cleansing that's taking place, along with a call to radical repentance. So, I don't know. Bottom line, I really don't know, but for some reason, maybe it's one of these scriptures or some other reason, there was an expectation when they saw John baptizing people, they associated this with, this is a sign that he is one of those people who is to come in the future. John, after this, he uses a riddle. John, I mean, he's speaking in, sort of in riddles. It's it, it doesn't speak straight. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It doesn't you have to figure out the meaning of that. You, that goes back to the, uh, the Passover lamb. That goes back to the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the one who was led like a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb before the shears. So you, you have to figure it out yourself. He doesn't explain it all to you. He uses another riddle. He says in John chapter 1, verse 30, This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who is preferred before me because he was before me. So... It's like a riddle. He's after me, but he's before me, which is why he is greater than me, because he's both before me and after me. Well, how can you be before somebody and after somebody? That's a riddle. You know, we know from the story in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist was born before Jesus. We know that from the, from the story in, in Luke 1. So John is right that he was before Jesus in that sense. And also from Mark chapter 1, we know the ministry of John the Baptist was there before the ministry of Jesus. So John came about preaching a baptism for the repentance of repentance for the mission of sins in the wilderness before Jesus started his ministry. So John was before Jesus either way you look at it. On the other hand, John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh. So Jesus was before all things. So he was before John, but he was also after John. So this is the riddle. He's greater than me because he was after me but before me. Uh, I think of other similar riddles. Jesus 
Jesus uses a similar riddle in Matthew chapter 22 when he says, okay, when the Messiah comes, how can he be the son of David? Because David says he's his Lord. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So how can he be the son of David if he's the Lord of David? And that stumped the Pharisees and the, the, the religious Jews who were coming to test Jesus. And the truth is, he is both. He is the Lord of David and the son of David. In Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David. So he is the root out of which David comes, but he's also the offspring that came out of David. So he is both before and after. He's the forerunner and the offspring of David as well. So a lot of these mysteries are explained in the form of riddles that we can only understand later on. That one obviously is pointing back to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, about the uh, the root and offspring of Jesse, father of David. So uh, how did John the Baptist know for certain that Jesus was the one coming after him. How did he know for certain? Well, John chapter 1, we just read this uh, last week, John chapter 1 and verse 32, John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified this is the Son of God. So how did John the Baptist know for sure? He knew he was sent to prepare the way for one who come, would come after him, but how did he know who it was? Well, he's, he's saying right here, I know because the one who sent me to baptize with water, that's talking about God, said, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, he is the one to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So, so John could tell because we know from the other gospel accounts in the baptism of Jesus, that's when Jesus, Jesus goes to be baptized by, by uh, uh, John, Matthew chapter 3. There's the account of that where Jesus goes to be baptized by John, and John's response is, wait a minute, I, you know... Yeah, uh, this is backwards here. I, you know, you should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And then when he, when John the Baptist does baptize him, Jesus says, "Well, permit it to be so to fulfill all righteousness." And after he is baptized, after Jesus is baptized, it says that the, the heavens open up, the Spirit of God descends in bodily form, in physical form on Jesus, and then there's the voice that says, "This is my Son." So. John knew at that point in time when he heard that voice from heaven that this was the Son of God. So that's how John knew for sure uh, that John had been told beforehand that that would be the definitive sign. So that, that's how he knew. So baptism of Jesus is mentioned in all four Gospels. And you know, baptism is a controversial subject in the Christian religious world today, and people ask the question, well, if baptism is for the remission of sins, why did Jesus have to get baptized? Because everyone knows that Jesus never sinned. So why was Jesus baptized in the first place? Well, one reason that Jesus was baptized is because this was the 
This is how John the Baptist knew when he was baptizing all these people. This is how he knew this is the Son of God. Because when Jesus was baptized, heavens open up, Holy Spirit comes down, voice from heaven. This was the signal. So that's one reason why he had to get baptized. But uh, I think there's another reason. Jesus says he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what does that mean? That's in... Uh, that's in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Uh, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, Mark chapter 1. But Jesus, we know, was without sin. In, in Hebrews 4.15, it says that he was tempted in every way just as we are, but was without sin. So why did Jesus need to get baptized? Why was it important? Well, and, and this, I think there's something important for us to understand about Jesus and the life of Jesus. After Jesus is baptized, he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. So he goes through a period of trial and testing after his baptism. Hebrews, Hebrews chapters 2, 3, 4, and 5, there's a long discussion about Jesus and understanding what kind of a high priest he has. And the point that it's making is it says that he, Jesus is the captain of our salvation, that he is the leader of our salvation, that he had to be made like us in every way. Now, we've already talked about how he, Jesus is, you know, he was the, the word of God, he's the son of God, but also he had to be make, made like us in every single way, he took on flesh and blood. and It says that in Hebrews, he was tempted in every way just as we are. Therefore, he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he had the same weaknesses in his nature that we do, which is difficult to grasp. How could he be the son of God? But also struggle with temptation like, like we are. It says that he learned obedience and was perfected through suffering. So he had to go through trials and temptations and suffering. He showed us the way he went before us. He provides the pattern in his life for the way that we have to live in following after him. So I think that's why he had to get baptized also, because he's showing us the way. He's going us before us. He's baptized. The Holy Spirit comes down upon him at his baptism. But it's not over. Then he goes into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan. And he has to overcome when he's tempted. So, so I think that's why Jesus had to get baptized also, because he's providing the example and showing us the way that we're going to be living our lives. And the, the encouraging thing is that all the things that Jesus is asking us to do, he's done them before. He showed the pattern that we're to follow. And he, and, and he did it so, he, he, so we can do it too. Now, Andrew, who is one of the two disciples of John the Baptist, who leaves John the Baptist to follow Jesus after this, introduces his brother Simon to Jesus. And Simon is, of course, better known by the name of Peter. So let's read John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. 
Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, he said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone, or Peter. Um, now, <clears throat> a few things we learn here. Um, one thing is that the Messiah and the Christ are the exact same thing in two different languages. The, the terms are the same thing. The Christ means the anointed one. The Messiah means the anointed one. Messiah is in uh, Hebrew or Aramaic and uh, uh Christ is in Greek, but which the New Testament is written in, so the two words mean exactly the same thing. The other thing is, Jesus gives Simon a new name, which is Peter. Now, we just went through Genesis fairly recently, and can you think of other people whose names were changed by God? And really, there aren't that many people. Of all the people in, in the Bible, there's only a, a small handful who got their names changed. But it was generally for some pretty significant reason. God isn't in the business of randomly changing people's names. They, they generally tend to die with the names that they were given when they were, when they were born. So a couple of examples right from the beginning. Abram was renamed Abraham, which means the father of many. There's obvious significance in that name change. And Sarah's na Sarai's name was changed to Sarah. Connected with that, this in Genesis 17. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Do you remember when that happened? That was when he wrestled with the Lord all night long in Genesis 32. After wrestling, that means uh, God prevails or prevailing with God. <clears throat> Another one, at Numbers 13, was when the 12 spies are sent out. One of the two faithful spies was Hoshea, the son of Nun, and his name was changed to Joshua or Jesus. Just the same word in two different languages. His name was changed to Jesus. So the successor, the one who would lead the people into the promised land, was given a name change. His name was changed to Jesus. So after Moses, Jesus finishes the job and brings it home. So what does that tell us? Obviously, there's obvious reason for that name change, which I don't even have to explain. And then, of course, uh, Saul of Tarsus is the other one I can think of. Or his name was changed to Paul. When he had a conversion, he's the he's the uh, basically the missionary to the Gentiles. So, not too many name changes in Scripture, but they're all significant. And of all the apostles, of the twelve apostles. His, he's the one whose name was changed by Jesus that's recorded here. So his name is changed to stone or rock. So what's with that? Why did Jesus feel like it was necessary to change his name? Uh, now, I don't know how many people in the room, at least two of us who were raised Roman Catholic. And so the whole significance of Peter and the three of us, I think, who were raised in, in Roman Catholic uh, backgrounds. So 
and, and for those of us with Catholic backgrounds are smiling because you realize this is huge significance in, in the Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic, Catholic school when I, when I was younger. Uh, uh, a lot of people have bad experiences with Catholic Church. I didn't really so much. Uh, and I learned a lot of good things from my Catholic upbringing, which I really appreciate. So it's, this is not not particularly to get down on, on that, but this 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 is very significant. The whole the changing of of Simon's name to Peter, because this rings in the back of my head. This was the first scripture, really, for my Catholic Catholic part of my life. The only scripture I really knew by heart was Matthew sixteen eighteen. Let's turn there, because this is so significant. The whole. I think we should take a look at this, the significance of the name change. Matthew 16. I remember when, when arguing with Protestants, I felt like this is the only scripture in the Bible I needed to know. This, this answered all questions right here. <laughs> so, Matthew chapter 16, we'll start reading in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So that's, so wow, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot right there. So the, the religious world tends to divide into two camps when they look at the scripture. When, they, when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. So you've got one group of people saying the rock is Peter. Peter is the rock on which the church is built. On the other hand, you get the other group of people says, no, no, it's not Peter. It's his confession of faith. It's what he said. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the rock on which the church is built is that Jesus is the Christ, is the son of God. So which one is the truth? Okay, now... The, the, the people who go in very different directions depending on how they answer that question. So, uh, now, the significance when I was growing up, a Catholic was that the rock which, which the church was built on is Peter himself, Peter the man. Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. Whatever Peter binds on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever he loses on earth will be loosed in heaven. So, wow, this is pretty pretty amazing here. Okay, then from there, now, 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 uh, okay, so, so far, maybe so good, but, but then where it goes from there is really interesting. And for people who aren't raised Catholic, this will sound really strange to you, but this is what I was taught. And a few of us in the room were taught this. They'll say, all right, Peter's authority, now Peter's been dead a long time, Peter's authority continued on in certain other people in an cha unbroken chain after his death. Well, who was who were those certain other people? Well, they said Peter went to Rome. He founded a church there. Therefore, he was the bishop of Rome. And so after he died, the next bishop of Rome took over, and the next bishop of Rome, and the next bishop of Rome after that. And so 
Peter died in Rome. He was martyred in Rome, according to church history. Uh, so the Peter's authority over the entire worldwide church continued over the generations by his successor, the Bishop of Rome, otherwise known as the Pope. Okay, so there you have the Catholic Church. That's the foundation for it. So, and the Catholic view, because you know I was raised Catholic, so I went back and was asking a lot of questions. Catholic view is here. Here's here's in a nutshell. This is the way the Catholic the Catholic way they look at the spiritual world. They'll say, Jesus didn't write a book, he founded a church. The church gave us the Bible. The church, therefore, has the authority as basically the source of the Bible. And when identifying the Bible, the church can tell us what's in the Bible and what's not. The church can also interpret the Bible. And the question comes up, which church? There are lots of churches out there. Well, the one that Jesus himself founded, the one that's led by the successor of Peter. And then the Holy Spirit would then continue to guide this church and all these successors of Peter so they could authoritatively teach. So, consequently, there's an awful lot that hangs on this passage, you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock I'll build my church. Now, Jesus would use expressions of speech frequently, which are, you could take more than one way. He's standing in front of the temple, and he says, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And everybody's thinking it's the building that Herod had just built and taken 46 years to build. No, he's talking about his body. He's using a play on words. And in the Gospel of, um, of John, when Lazarus dies... Jesus says, Lazarus is sleeping. Let's go wake him up. And everybody assumes, no, no, he's sleeping. He's sick. That'll, he'll get better. Let him sleep. And he says, no, he's talking about, no, figuratively, he's talking about he's, de- he's dead and we're going to physically raise him. So Jesus would use figurative speech <coughs> to make a point where you could take it more than one way. That's just what he did. And uh, so here we are. You're Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. Um, So Protestants reacting against the Catholics feel like if we can see that Peter is the rock on which the church is built, then we all have to become Roman Catholics and follow the Pope and, you know, kiss the Pope's ring and and, and all the rest of it that goes along with it. And so they say, well, we we need to draw a line in the sand here. Peter can't be the rock on which the church is built. The rock on which it's built has to be the, the profession of faith that he made, um, well, <clears throat> what do we do with this? My attitude is, well, Peter's name was changed to Rock for some reason, okay? It, 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 it's, it's, it's changed to Rock. There's a reason behind this. There's something significant that's going on there. Um, Jesus did say that Peter would have the keys to the kingdom, and whatever he bound on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever he loosed on earth, we loosen him. So there's something going on with Peter. Uh, on the other hand, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. See, very interesting to me, right after he says this, it's verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to show the disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So 
when I was raised Catholic, we didn't we didn't focus on this part of <laughs> Jesus's interaction with Peter so much. So he says, "You don't know what you're talking about. You're totally worldly in your thinking." And he says, "Get behind me, Satan." So we we don't want to press the Peter the Peter thing uh, too too far here for sure. Now, on the other hand, I'm trying to think about. Peter was given the name rock. Whatever you buy on earth be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth be loose in heaven. Think about how God used Peter, this guy whose name was changed to rock, throughout the rest of the story, the gospel story. And the day of Pentecost, Peter is the one who's preaching in Acts chapter 2. Peter is the one who concludes to the people in Acts chapter 2, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, and then he tells the people, the people say, what do we need to do? He says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. He says, this promise is for you, your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So, Peter opens up the gates to salvation. He unlocks the gates to all of the Jews gathered all over the world on the day of Pentecost. Peter's the one doing that. He's the one who's giving the speech. In Acts chapter 10, the household of Cornelius, Peter, Cornelius, is a Gentile. He's unclean. The Jews aren't even supposed to go in their house and eat with them. And God shows, reveals to Peter of all the apostles through a vision that, no, God is declaring these people to be clean. Peter goes into Cornelius' household, sees the Holy Spirit come down miraculously on the household, and realizes God has given the seal of approval for these Gentiles. And so Peter instructs that the Gentiles be baptized. Peter concludes in Acts chapter 11 that God has made it clear that the Gentiles can enter into the kingdom just like the Jews. And in Acts 15, when the council convenes in Jerusalem to sort out this Gentile one, Peter says, no, no, God showed me the Holy Spirit came down just like he did in the beginning, and, and, and just like in Acts chapter 2. So Peter is the one who unlocks the gates for the Jews in Acts chapter 2, unlocks the gates for everybody else, for all the rest of us, the Gentiles, in Acts chapter 10. So Peter had a pretty substantial role and a unique role in the church in terms of what he did. So, in, in a sense, is the church built on, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. That's true. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But it's also built on Peter opening the doors up to everybody. He had the special role to do that. So maybe that's the reason why he was given the name The Rock. Um, I don't know, but God used him in a special way, no question. So whether you believe that the rock is the confession of faith or the rock is Peter himself, I still can't get to the idea that you know future future bishops of Rome that it will be it, there's nothing in the in the text or in the early church that I could see the earliest writings that that ever took it that far to say that that this 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 uh, binding and loosing, and this this power and this this authority would be handed down to a succession of bishops, many of whom were extremely corrupt people uh, in the future. So uh, I'll just just leave that leave that point where it is. I want to talk, 
turn, turn now to the conversion of Nathaniel. Let's read John chapter 1. It's a great, great convert, very, very short conversion story. This is a pretty easy conversion from a skeptic here. John chapter 1, starting in verse 43 to 51. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You were the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So very, very powerful conversion here. So Nathaniel's a skeptic. First of all, Jesus of Nazareth, hello? Yeah. Nazareth, I mean, what kind of a place, does anything good come out of Nazareth? So he puts down the hometown that uh, Jesus grew up in, saying it can't, the Messiah is not going to come out of Nazareth. Uh, you've got to be kidding me. And, but on the other hand, so he, he's a skeptic, but however, he wants, he's willing to, willing to check it out. So I'll, he, he goes to see, he's willing to go to see Jesus. He's a truth seeker who's a skeptic, but he needed evidence to back up what he was saying. So he's convinced when he sees that Jesus has supernatural ability. He, 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 sees that, he says, you're an honest guy. There's no deceit in you. You're a true Israelite. You're, you're a good guy. And like, well, how do you know me? He says, well, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before you were called. So he, obviously he has supernatural ability to see things that he couldn't physically see. Uh, so that, that was what convinces Nathaniel, and he immediately recognizes, he says, you are the son of God, you are the king over Israel, king of Israel. So he, Psalm 2, uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, he's fulfilling, he says, you're the one that's fulfilling those prophecies. So Jesus praises Nathaniel, he says, here is a true Israelite in whom is no deceit. Now, I was thinking about this expression, Jesus is assessment of Nathaniel. He says, there's no deceit in you. You're a totally, you're a totally, completely honest person. And uh, I was thinking about, it made me think about something that Paul said in Romans chapter 2 about, uh, about deceitful people. And let's turn it, let's turn Romans chapter 2. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3 in verse 10. Paul says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There is no one who does good, no, not one. 
Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their ways. And the peace of God they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, verse 13, it says, With their tongues they practiced deceit. So he says, there's nobody, nobody's seeking God. Nobody's good. Nobody's righteous. Not one. Not one person. So he says, they're all, they're all liars, basically. With their tongues they practiced deceit. So Apostle Paul is saying, Jesus says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. You say, well, they must be using different words here. No, they're using the exact same word. So what do you do with that? Jesus says, here's a man, there's no deceit in him. Paul says, there's nobody righteous, they're all corrupt, and all people are deceitful. What do you do with that? I'll tell you what the Calvinists do. They, they bury, they explain away what Jesus said, and they exalt what Paul said there. They say, no, we're all corrupt, we're all dishonest, we're all totally depraved. That's not Jesus' attitude. He says, here's an Israelite in whom there's nothing false. Here's an honest man. This is a good guy. And Jesus said that in so many places where he contradicted this idea that we're totally depraved. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, uh, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 10, when he sends the disciples out, he says, look for a worthy person. What do you think happened when the disciples came back? They said, wow, there's no worthy people out there. Everybody's unworthy. They're, they're totally depraved, just like we are. No, he said, look for a worthy person. Uh, in Luke 8... When Jesus gives the parable of the sower, the seed that falls on the good soil is those with a good and noble heart who hear the word and embrace it and, and, and it bears a great harvest. Matthew 23, Jesus talks about to the Pharisees, he says, all the blood of the righteous people is crying out and, and it's going to be testifying against you. So, Jesus believed that there were worthy people, that there were honest people, that there were people who were seeking God, and, and he, ran into, he ran into several of them along the way, Nathaniel being one of them. So this idea that we're totally depraved is, is, is complete nonsense according to Jesus. And we always have to start with Jesus and listen to what he said. He is the teacher. We have one teacher, the Christ. And then we understand whatever Paul is talking about in the context of what Jesus first said. That's how we approach everything in the scriptures. So Jesus, we start with Jesus in the Gospels, and then we move on to the Acts, to, 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 the, to, the, uh, to the letters. Now, what's Paul talking about in Romans chapter 2 and 3? He's talking about two groups of people. There's the Jews... And there's the Gentiles, and the Jews are looking down on the Gentiles. And he says, look, this, this, other, this passage here was addressed to the Jews, is that you're all, you're all worthless, you're all corrupt, is the Jewish nation has no business looking down on the Gentiles. That's the point that he's making. He's talking about two groups of people, and, that the, and he, he holds up the Gentiles. He says the, the Gentiles who didn't have the law, but, but who are doing what God said, they're, they're better. They're the ones who are, who, are, who are right in their hearts as opposed to the Jews who were given the law of Moses but aren't following it. So, um, 
So anyway, that's just Jesus, and there are lessons in that for evangelism. Jesus is reaching out. There, there are people who were skeptical, good-hearted, honest, seeking the truth. They just need to be shown. And uh, Nathaniel was one of them. So there are good-hearted people, and, and, and you know, who, who are, it doesn't mean that they're flawless. It doesn't mean that they haven't committed sins, but they have good and noble hearts. And those are the people we need to be looking for and seeking uh, and, and persuading. And then Jesus tells Nathaniel that he says, you're going to see greater things. These facts is that you're going to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this, this Son of Man reference, Jesus refers to himself several times as the Son of Man. And that, that to me, that goes back to the Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, 13, uh, uh, Daniel says, I was watching in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So this is the Son of Man who comes and who receives the kingdom, the eternal kingdom. So... Uh, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. You'll see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what's this uh, angels of God ascending and descending reference to? Well, we just from, we know that from going through the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 28, let's turn back there. In Genesis 28, starting at verse 10. This is when Jacob was going over to Laban's household. Uh, he was fleeing his own home. He was concerned his brother was, was going to kill him after his father died. Verse 10, Now Jacob went out from the well of Oath and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. Then he took one of the stones of that place, put it at his head. He lay down in that place to sleep. Then he drained and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And then down into verse 16, Then Jacob woke from his sleep, and he said, The Lord is in this place. I did not know it. So he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So, he says, you're going to see the angels, a stairway or ladder between heaven and earth. And he says, you'll see the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus is making himself, he is the stairway between heaven and earth. He's connecting these two completely different planes together. He is the gateway to heaven. He provides the, the avenue through which God's blessings come down from heaven and he's also the mediator that brings us to God. The same, the same point. that he, he, he connects the two. He's fully God and fully man. He's anchored both in heaven and on earth. And uh, it's a beautiful way to see Jesus as he describes himself. There's so many ways that we see Jesus expressed in he's the great prophet. He is the king. He is the Christ. He is the son of God. And he is the stairway between heaven and earth that connects us to God and all the blessings of God. So we'll close our study of, of John chapter 1 there. Pick it up in chapter 2 next time. <laughs>